Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. Today I'm going to try to cover two different categories, the F software series in Slackware and the K software series in Slackware. It seems like that's a lot to cover, but each of them, like the E series, only includes one package. F has the Linux FAQs, and K has the Linux kernel. Linux FAQs, I don't have a whole lot to say about. They are a series of text files. It takes up about 1.3 megabytes in the documentation folder, slash usr, slash doc, slash Linux facts. That's L, well, Linux capital L, dash FAQ, all capital, and then lowercase s. And in this directory, you've got about, I don't know, 20 different files. Uh, there's an afterstep FAQ, a tappy FAQ, BL FAQ, which, as it turns out, stands for brief Linux FAQ. The F-tape FAQ, FTP, GCC, a Joe command reference. Don't know why Joe gets a command reference and Jove or Elvis uh, and others don't, but that was kind of interesting. LDP FAQ, don't know what that stands for. A Linux FAQ, Linux RAID, MSSQL6 via OpenLink, PHP, ODBC FAQ, a PPP FAQ, which is the, um, what is it, point to point protocol or something like that. Uh, it's, it's what modems used to use to talk to servers. SCSI, gener- uh, generic FAQ security, which covers, strangely, a cryptographic file system thing. And, and I'll say why that's strange in a moment. SMP FAQ, swap space FAQ threads, and wine and WordPerfect. That's all the FAQs that are in this directory. And I will say that when I first installed Linux, when I first installed Slackware 12. Whatever it was, one or two that I installed. No, it wouldn't have been two. 12.0 or 12.1. My first stop, well, after the reading the welcome email from Pat, uh, my first stop was, which I think in the welcome email he he refers to this. Uh, my first stop were the the Linux FAQs because I figured, well, sounds like that's where all the documentation is, so I'll go look at that. Turns out it's not exactly the case, right? These are just FAQs, so they're frequently asked questions in no particular priority or order. I think the best out of the lot is probably the Linux FAQ, which um, Linux FAQ, Linux FAQ, there we go, uh, is dated from 2004. That's the, the latest update that this file has received, 2004. It is something like 5,000 lines long, so it is not a short document, and it covers a lot of important things, like general information about Linux, information specific to the Linux kernel, disk drives, partitions, and file systems, system libraries, and so on. So it gives a lot of, I would say, important information for maybe a new user, at least in the sense that it gives you sort of background about what you've just installed on your system. The problem with this file, as with many of the files in Linux FAQs, in my um, opinion, 
is that it is quite everything is quite old here. Um, so if I do an ls dash l slash user slash doc slash Linux FAQ, I have got dates. The most recent one is 2006, which makes sense. The package itself is dated 2006. Um, but it, it, I would say on average, we're looking at about 2000 time frame. That includes a couple of files dating back to 1996, 2000, oh, 1999, 2006, and 2000. Yeah. So it's, it, it leans heavily towards sort of like just the turn of the century, which is interesting and maybe, maybe fascinating from one perspective, but from a pragmatic perspective, I think there's a lot of information here that while not strictly out of date, it, not by any stretch of the imagination, up to date, if you take my meaning. If if someone's to install Slackware today, and even I'm talking 14.2, like I'm I'm anticipating 15.0 as most of us are, January 17th or 18th, by the way, uh, that's my new prediction. Um, f- so we're anticipating 15.0, but if someone installs 14 installed 14.2 back in 2016 or whatever, these documents are still 10 years old at that point. At, at best. And really, that's only one file after step was the one that was dated in 2006. So one of these files is, is 10 years old. The rest are 12, 16, 20 years old as of 2016. So to me, I feel like these are probably due for maybe archival. I mean, it's only 1.3 megabytes, so I'm not convinced that they need to go away because there's a lot of information that is interesting reading in here. But possibly, I don't know, I would think that maybe just taking a dump of the docs.slackware.com wiki and putting them into user doc slash, I don't know, Slackware maybe, would be maybe a little bit more informative for the typical user. And by typical user, I mean the mythical user who has somehow installed Slackware without knowing anything about it. And I realize that that's a very unlikely scenario, so... There's probably an argument to just kind of let this be. Um, but I do think that, that it is a little bit strange to continue to ship 2006 documents as your, as your only documentation folder. I think, I think that, that strikes me as a little bit odd. But, I mean, but it's not the only documentation folder, of course. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff in user doc. I guess maybe this FAQ set stands out because it has its own software set. It has its own category. And so when you're installing, you see that, and you think, well, that's going to be significant. And then you go there, and it's 20 years old, and you think, well, I'm not so much worried about my Atapi CD-ROM drive anymore. I'd rather have information about whether, I don't know, USB-C is supported, or or HDMI audio is going to work, or, or whatever you know new technology you might be interested in, Bluetooth for that matter. So I think this could use an update is, is the bottom line, and I think that the update already exists. I think it's the docs.slackware.com wiki. I don't know that that needs to be on as you know part of the download. I do think there's value to having documentation as part of like the thing that someone has downloaded to install the system. I really do. I know that if they have a copy of Slackware, you can almost you you can pretty safely assume that they have internet access. But that doesn't mean that they have constant internet act- access, and I, I think just extracting all the documents from the doc.slackware.com site, putting it on the on the, the 
quote-unquote disk on the ISO. I think there's value there. So that's um, that's the Linux FAQ. That's the F set done. Next up is the K for kernel. And this is an exciting one, possibly more exciting than than you might expect. I don't know what you expect, but the Linux kernel is, I mean, it's it's a big deal, right? Um, it is it, it is the thing that we have named our system after. Now, you can argue whether the system is properly called Linux or GNU Linux. Doesn't really matter in this in this case. The point being that colloquially, colloquially, people have decided that this OS that I am running and possibly you, dear listener, are also running is called Linux. Whether that makes sense, whether that's the best name for an OS in terms of sort of what it's being named after, or is it being named after? I mean, there is the argument, too, that at a certain point, even though, yes, the kernel is named Linux, the OS is named Linux, well, does that mean that the OS is named for the kernel, or does it just mean that the the term Linux is the brand, and it has been applied to two separate things? I don't know. It's up to it's up to you to decide on, on what you believe about naming conventions, point is that this kernel is a big deal. I think, personally, that it ushered in a, a a cultural change, a cultural shift. I don't feel necessarily that open culture, and by that I mean Creative Commons works, things that have been sort of declared as shared common assets among artists and among people, I don't think that it would have been codified in the way that it has been codified without the Linux kernel showing people how to do that first. And the reason I think this, and I'm going to just make generalities and, and things that are probably very, very wrong in the in the bigger picture, but from my perspective at least, I don't know that the artistic communities of the world have the um, sort of the wherewithal or the, the background, I guess. They, they yeah, they, they don't have the background just sit down and, and think, okay, the the rules of engagement need to be defined. And that's why you see, like, pre-Linux kernel, you, you, you saw a lot of shareware and, and art that was put out with little notes about, you can use this in any way you want, except don't use it to make money, uh, but if you do, send me a postcard. You know, things like that. Like, you, you would you would see these sort of these these individual attempts at at sharing something and encouraging one another to 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 understand that yeah hey we're friends we're pals you know use this responsibly but there was no centralized there was no there was no body with the with the understanding of how that could be set in sort of chiseled in stone you know like someone to come up with a common language for that and i don't know cuz artists in other words I don't think artists are typically thinking about licensing, and neither were a lot of game companies before the Linux kernel. Gaming, tabletop gaming I'm talking about, like board games and role-playing games, they didn't think about that sort of thing. But at some point, a developer at uh, Wizards of the Coast, who publishes Dungeons & Dragons, saw that the GNU public license was something that was shaping and changing the way that software was being made, and he emulated that license in the open game license, the OGL. So, I mean, it, and he's documented that that was something, that the GPL was something that he modeled it off of. So it's, it is, 
I should probably provide a citation for that. I might at some point in the show notes. We'll find out. Um, but the point is that it, it had unquestionably had a profound effect on culture because software developers don't necessarily want to think about licensing, but, but they do have to in ways that artists and, um, and, and game developers don't necessarily have to. It's just not, it isn't, you know, if, if you absolutely love something and you want to use it, then maybe you'll just sort of come up with a little, your own version of it. And in, in those worlds, it's typically easier to do that than in software development, where when you really, really need a, 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 crypto, a cryptography library, uh, do you, you, you're not going to just come up with a quick version of it on your own. Not, not if you want it to, to be any good. So, I think the software license idea obviously predates Linux kernel. The free license, certainly the GPL, definitely predates the Linux kernel. But the Linux kernel happened to popularize it among not only computerists, but, but everyone who was near enough computers to have heard about this new thing happening in software called Linux and the way that it was official that you were allowed to share the code. I think there's pretty good evidence that that had a ripple-on effect throughout lots of different communities aside from just software. So I do want to cover some of the significant things about the Linux kernel, but before I do that, I want to demonstrate how easy it is to compile a kernel on Slackware. Because lately, um, compiling a kernel has become a, a, a relatively rare thing, which I think is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I am not lamenting for the fact that it no longer, you know, it's no longer required that you compile your own kernel when you, when you switch to Linux. Like that, that is not something that I miss or that I missed out on. Well, I, I did miss out on it, although I did happen to misunderstand some instructions about getting a driver included on my laptop at the time, a Sony VIO with a, a wireless chip that was just a little bit too new for the kernel that I had access to. So um, I misunderstood the instructions and thought that I did have to compi compile a kernel. So that's actually my introduction to, to Slackware Linux was to compile a kernel. So I did, I, I, I did miss out on the requirement, but I didn't realize that I missed out on it. And so I, comp I did compile my own kernel uh, initially. So the kernel, what is it? Well, a kernel is software. It's compiled code that boots a computer. It recognizes and ensures communication between all of the components attached to that computer, whether those components are inside the computer, like the physical box, or outside the box. So if it's a printer or a Wacom tablet or a mouse or a keyboard or a webcam, whatever. So most people don't have to think about this anymore. The Linux kernel is a very big project. It has a lot of things compiled into it already. And so when you install Linux, the kernel just ha usually happens to have everything that you need already in it. And your distribution probably compiles a new kernel every now and again and sends it to you as an update. You may not even notice, depending on what kind of user you are. It just happens, and and there's no need for you to necessarily really give it any more thought. And on Slackware, I mean, honestly, 
The same is true. Um, I mean, you do run the same kernel for a very long time on Slackware, but there are updates here and there, like security updates. And sometimes, if you want to, you can update from the current branch. But even doing that might be something that you, there's a little bit of flexibility in, in, in how you choose to do that. Compiling a kernel on Slackware is is really simple. I don't know that I do it like the best of ways, meaning I don't, for instance, compile it and then install it into a special destination directory and then make a package and then install that package. That would be the correct way to do it. I learned how to compile a kernel from the Slack book, which just kind of installs it in place. And, and so that's what I do. So, and that's what I'm going to do here now with you, dear listener. So if you, if you want to follow these steps, you're certainly able to. It's all written up on slackermedia.info slash handbook slash docu.php question mark ID equals kernel hash compile. But, you know, you could choose to make a couple of extra steps, and rather than doing a make install, you could do the make install into a destination directory and then make that a package. I find that that's just not necessary, though, because the kernel, in my experience, is not really something that, you know, once you've installed it, you just, it's going to be there for the next couple of years, really. Um, I, I don't really uninstall kernels, so I don't know. I don't think it's that big of a deal to just kind of do this in place, which is why I'm going to do it in place. So the first thing, when you want to compile a kernel, the first thing that you have to do is you have to get the code for the kernel. You have to get a kernel. And that is available from kernel.org. If you go to kernel.org, that's K-E-R-N-E-L dot org. Um, if you go to Linux kernel, you, you, you get a big yellow button in the front. Latest release, 5.15.12. Download that. That's the latest stable release. So if you want to just go with whatever's being offered right now. It's been through all the QA testing that they do. That's that's what you want. I I could understand also maybe going with a long-term release, which has a longer support cycle, but that kind of only matters if you're actually going to follow the support. You know, like, long-term support doesn't mean a whole lot if you're not actually checking back in for patches. So do whatever you want. Um... I am running 5.15.6, which I imagine was just a latest stable release because I don't see it listed here under long-term. Um, yeah, so I think that was probably just, like, whatever I found on, on the website. So you download that that code. It comes in. It comes as a .xz um, compressed archive, I think. And um, then you un archive it to your slash user slash src directory. Now, if you're going to work in that directory, you do have to be root. So you're going to become root at that point. You could work in another directory. I've just, once again, I've this is how I've always done it. So I just tar xvf linux dash 5.15 or whatever dot whatever xyz dot tar dot xz dash capital c to get into a different directory slash usr slash src slash linux dash x dot y dot z so in other words you're telling tar to unarchive the linux kernel code to user source and then in a subdirectory named for the linux 
uh, version. And then you CD into that directory, CD slash USR slash source slash Linux dash X dot Y dot Z, and you're there. You're in, you're in the kernel that you're about to compile and then install into your system. Well, before you go about configuring your kernel, it makes a lot of sense to grab a configuration file that's most of the way there. And someone has already done most of the work to configure that kernel for your Slackware system. His name is Patrick Volkerding. So you might as well just grab a config file from Patrick Volkerding. Um, and those are found on uh, slackware.com slash pub slash slackware, or your, your Slackware mirror, uh, slash pub slash slackware slash slackware dash you know, or Slackware 64, whatever, um, in the source for the Linux uh, kernel. You can also just find the file itself on your system. You have the configuration file already. Uh, it is in user source Linux dash, what did this system come with? Uh, 4.4.240. If you do an ls in that directory, you don't see any configuration file. If you do an ls-a, then you see a .config. That .config file could be your .config file. So just copy, copy dot dot slash linux dash four dot four dot two forty dot config into your current directory, and that gets you, honestly, about eighty percent of the way there. Okay, so now you've got a, a starter config file. I find the easiest way to configure the kernel. There are several different ways. But the easiest way, in my opinion, is make space menu config. That's going to give you a menu-driven configuration screen, and I, I just find that a little bit easier to sort through. You can do just a make space config, and it'll give you, I think it's just make config, uh, and it'll give you an option for every single option that's not configured yet. And you have to answer yes or no, or m make it a module or whatever, and you, it takes a long time. With make menu config, you can kind of just ignore the stuff that you don't need. The, the eternal struggle here is knowing what you need. And that's why I say start with Patrick's config file, because he, he has a bunch of sensible defaults that are probably going to cover your use case. Now, if you see something while you're scrolling through the menu config, you see something that that applies to your system, and it's not built in, then you can mark it to, to, to be included in your kernel. Or if you see something that you just are 100% positive, has no application for your use case, then you can exclude that. So I tend to, and I was talking to someone on Mastodon about this the other month, um, I do, there is a tendency, I think, to sort through your kernel options in this menu config and think, oh, I can definitely exclude that. And that felt good, right? Because you, you got rid of, for instance, Firewire. You don't have a Firewire port 1394 on your, um, on your tower or on your laptop or whatever, so definitely can exclude the drivers for it, right? Of course you can. That feels great. And then you, you see something else, and you're like, I don't really understand what that is, but I don't, you know, if I don't recognize it, I probably don't have it on my computer. I'll just exclude that. And then it becomes addictive, and you just start excluding stuff. And in the end, you have excluded so much, and most of which you don't really know, but you're pretty sure that it doesn't apply to you, and then your system doesn't boot, and you feel bad about your poorly compiled kernel. So I would just trust Patrick Volkerding trust his config file, and just add in the things that you know that you need for your 
your setup. And and certainly if you're running Slackware now and it's working, then you probably don't need to change anything at all, to be honest. Um, I mean, sometimes, like for the, the most recent one that I compiled, I had, I, I think I did include a couple of new things that had just come under support because I thought, well, that that's something that I, I could have that hardware someday and it would be nice for that to just work. But generally speaking, the config file as is, is, is basically good enough. The, the other thing that you want to definitely, definitely make sure that the one category that I often go in and just kind of really double check is the, the file system option. The file systems that are supported, again, the default Slackware config is, is pretty pretty generous but you know there are a lot of open source file systems out there there are a lot of file systems out there and so just go in there and i I would just include them all personally and that way whatever disk whatever usb thumb drive you plug into your into your computer it's going to be recognized there's if, if there's a driver for it it's going to be recognized. So I definitely include all of those. And you definitely want to make sure that you're including the file system that you're using. Um, I've, I've screwed that up before. I've, I've, had, I've had JFS on my hard drive, and I, I've compiled a kernel and forgot to include JFS driver. That's not good. Uh, that's a guaranteed method of not booting your system. So make sure that you have all of your file systems included. If you don't know what file system you're using, cat slash etsy slash fs tab. That'll show you at least what you what what you are using like directly to boot your computer. So that's not a bad thing to have a, a, a quick look at just to make sure. Um I've simplified my schema a lot lately. I used to have like four different drives in my tower and I had var and temp and opt on different drives and different file systems. It was pretty stupid. So um, I've just simplified. Anyway, once you've configured your kernel, and again, 80-90% of it is already configured, so you, the, that probably won't take long. I mean, feel free to have a, a look through the menu to see all of the different things that are supported, but again, don't exclude too much, just have a look. Once you've done that, you'll you'll mark it done, and, and it'll confirm that it's finished, and it'll save all that information back to the file. Remember, it's in a .config file, so you won't see it after you're finished, but it's there unless you do an ls-a, you won't see it, but it's there. And 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 your the the compiling system built into this kernel directory um, knows how to you know knows to look at your .config file for the for the for the process. So first step: make bz image. That is b as in Bravo, z as in Zulu, and then image with a capital I. Make space bz image this doesn't take well I, sh- I shouldn't say it doesn't take that long it doesn't take that long actually that that's surprisingly quick the last compile that i did was on my new ryzen system and so i have to say it really didn't take long uh which which surprised me um make modules make space modules that's the second step that'll take a lot longer now again on my new system i was quite quite pleased to find that even that didn't take that long I remember the days of... Did I already say this on a past episode? I remember the days of compiling kernels on laptops, you know, at the public library or at a cafe, and it just seems like it just took forever. Um, But anyway, make BZ image, let that finish, and then make modules. Now, the BZ image is the thing that contains the, the, the actual kernel, the core of the kernel. The modules are all the modular components 
that you can uh, load into the kernel while the kernel is running. So it's not bad to have a lot of modules because that way they're they're there on your hard drive, but they're not going to get used unless you need them to be used. But there are they, they it does tend there there tend to be a lot of modules. So just be ready for a sort of a long compile time potentially. Now when that is finished, you're finished that you've compiled your kernel. That that's that's it. Now it hasn't been installed yet, but you've ins but you have compiled it. The installation method, because we're just doing it in place, um, is a little bit of a manual process. Uh, it's not hard though. So you move slash boot slash vm linux to slash boot slash vm linux um whatever whatever you want to call it maybe uh you know dash four dot four for instance if that's the if that's the kernel you're you're, you're replacing. So you're moving the current kernel, VM Linux, that's the compressed kernel, you're moving it to something else. You're, you're calling it something else. You're just changing its name to VM Linux dash old or dash 4.4. Usually I use the version number. And you'll see why it's worthwhile keeping this around in a moment. And then you do a move slash boot slash system dot map to slash boot slash system dot map dash 4.4, whatever. Now you can move your kernel, the one that you just compiled, into the boot directory. And the way that, uh, that, that I've, that I do this in order to preserve the correct permissions and so on is I just do a cat arch slash x86 underscore 64 slash boot slash bz image and then I redirect the output of that concatenation to slash boot slash vm linux. So now we've got a new vm linux in the slash boot uh, directory. It's called vm linux by the way because I don't know exactly why but it's a it's a compressed version of linux and I that's the, the z is supposed to indicate that I think. The VM, I'm not 100% sure what that's all about. So anyway, um, I mean, someone, I'm sure, understands exactly why it's called VM Linux, but I'm just saying that's, there is a reason, I don't know what it is, but that's what it's called. So, then you can copy your system map over to slash boot slash system map. So that's cp space system dot map, you'll, you'll see it in the directory, slash, uh, to space slash boot slash system dot map. Easy, right? So your current iteration, your current version of your infrastructure, of your kernel and the files that it needs, get no indication of versioning. Um, I mean, you could. You can do whatever you want. All of this is going to be referenced in a moment in your boot file, in your lilo.conf file. So you can call this stuff really whatever you want. But this is a sensible way. So you're, you're, you're sort of rotating stock. You're taking the current VM Linux and you're putting it on a back shelf, and you're marking what version it was, just in case you need to go back to it later. And then the current one, you're just putting into place so that, you know, configuration files and so on, they don't need to change all that much. It's just going to still point to VM Linux. And then finally, the, the, the technically, finally, the, 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 the last step, technically, of the install process, because you've just, by catting your, v, your BZ image into slash boot slash vm linux that was the install the the next install step though is make space modules underscore install that copies all of those module files that you waited three cups of coffee for them to compile that copies all those module files into user uh lib uh, modules or wherever modules live i don't actually remember make modules install that puts everything into place you're done 
you're done. That's it. Except one thing, Lilo. So you want to um, boot your computer. So you'll probably, I mean, you're going to want to update Lilo is what I'm trying to say. And um, the reason you need to do this is because you want to add an entry as a fallback in case your new kernel doesn't work. So open up slash Etsy slash Lilo.conf in whatever text editor you want to use. You could use Emacs. There's an episode on that that I did last week. Um, but you don't have to. Any any text editor will do. So um, slash Etsy slash Lilo.conf, you need to be root or sudo in order to access that file to edit it, rather. And then um, you'll see an entry somewhere in there that has image root label read-only. So image is going to be slash boot slash VM Linux. Well, that's already there, right? Because we, we, we named the new one the same as, as the old one. So there's nothing to update there. Root is slash dev slash, you know, SDA1 or, or whatever your boot uh, hard drive is. So again, no change. Label, call it whatever you want. Um, I propose something like Slackware 5.15.12 or, or whatever kernel you installed. So you know which which version this is. Uh, and then read-only, again, that's already there. It's 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 old. You don't have to update it. So the, the one thing that you might want to update about the current existing entry is the label and that is literally it's just the human readable label that you'll see on your little screen on your on the boot screen in that little upper right hand corner menu um when you boot your slackware computer below this you're going to want to add another like just copy and paste that whole block but change everything to the old version well everything meaning the image so image equals slash boot slash vm linux dash 4.4 or whatever you updated from. The root is probably going to be the same place. I mean, it's still your hard drive, just so that's the same. Label is probably going to be the same as well, Slackware. But you could change it to like something like Slackware 4.4 or something. Again, something to, to let yourself just visually know that's the old one, this is the new one. And then read only because the uh, the the kernel image booting process read-only. So there you go. Um, save that, and then run Lilo. You have to run Lilo. Uh, this isn't Grub. You have to run Lilo so that Lilo gets, uh, you know, parses its little configuration file and, and and writes it out to wherever it needs to write it out to, and then you're done. I mean, like, really done. Like, reboot. Just sudo reboot, or su dash, and then reboot. However, you got your paths configured. If all went well, and I think it probably will have if you used the old .config file, your your computer will boot with a new kernel. And whatever new um, drivers it includes or whatever you know new features it has in it are now part of your operating system. Uh, it, after you do it, it's a little bit almost unspectacular. I mean, it will feel good. It feels good because you just feel like you're running a new kernel. And that feels really, really nice. I'm going to take a drink of coffee. Sorry about cheating. Um, I know the coffee break is, is really, really close, but I just wanted to take that sip. So anyway, um, it will feel great. You'll feel really, really good about running a new kernel. You will feel like you're just on top of the world. And that'll last for maybe 10 seconds, you know? And then and then it'll just give way to sort of just a sense of pride. Because, I mean, really, there's nothing Nothing changes. Unless you did this to get a specific piece of hardware to work. Then that specific piece of hardware is working, and that's great. So that'll carry you for a long time, because you did that. You made that happen. But if it's anything else, it's probably, you know, I mean, 
like when I when I recompiled my kernel because I got my I rebuilt my computer, it was just a nice thing to do. 5.515.6. It has not changed anything about like the way that my computer works. So it's just kind of nice to know that I'm I'm on 5.15.6 instead of whatever I was on before, which I could probably tell you. I think it was 5.9. 5.91.1 is what I was. Nope, 5.12.12. Apparently I had a 5.12.12 in there at some point. So anyway, um, it's that easy to do a kernel compile, though, on Slackware. And, and that is different, actually, from a lot of other distributions. A lot of distributions do it correctly, uh, and they build a package for their kernel, and the kernel comes from the distribution. And, I mean, Patrick Volkerding builds a package for the kernel as well. So if you just get a new kernel from Slackware server, it's no different than just install pkg, that pack, or slack pkg install that kernel. But if you're doing it yourself, it, it is quite easy. It's very, it's not very disruptive. And, and it's, it's really, there's that flexibility is what I'm trying to say. So if I want to, on a whim, upgrade to 5.15.6 or 9 or whatever I have, then, then it's really easy to do that on Slackware. If I want to do that on a whim on Fedora or Debian, it's a completely different process. Um, you, you have to, you know, you have to learn how to, package that thing up and what commands to use to get sort of your whole system recognizing that you've now updated your kernel. It, it isn't as, quite as easy for lots of good reasons. I'm not saying that as a critique. Um, there are fancy ways, there are fancy things that these distributions are doing with the way that they provide a kernel and, and ensure that when the kernel is updated, that all the things that are depending on that kernel, like any of the things that depend on it, are also updated, like NVIDIA drivers and things like that. So, I mean, there are lots of very good reasons for this, but honestly, with Slackware, I just really appreciate that I can, on a whim, as needed, upgrade my kernel. And, yeah, I might need to, you know, install a new video driver if I've got an NVIDIA card that's running uh, the NVIDIA driver instead of uh, nouveau you have to re you have to reinstall that because when you know it, it was built off of the your old kernel so you will reboot into a system without graphics i probably should have led with that uh, and then you'll have to grab the nvidia driver and install that and then you know start x again or, or whatever the process is so there you know it's it's i guess not necessarily tel terribly elegant to do your own kernel compile in a way comparatively and yet it's it's really really liberating and flexible so if you've ever if you've never compiled a kernel you should try it on slackware um if you're doing it well then number one it will it will still work <laughs> it, the config file will just work it will reboot you will not have a problem you will also have that fallback kernel so if you do it if you think you're doing it well, but you've somehow screwed it up, you can always just reboot or uh, boot into your old kernel, and everything will 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 be you'll just be running your old kernel. And you you could even update your lilo config to, to default to your old kernel, and just forget that you ever tried the other thing. It's not that big of a deal. It is very liberating. If you're curious about compiling kernels, try it on Slackware. That's the place to try it, I think. It, I think you're going to have a higher success rate of compiling a kernel on Slackware than most other current distributions. I think it's time for coffee now.
highlight some of the things that the colonel has done and is capable of doing. Um, as I've said, the colonel was a big deal in terms of, of sort of making um, official licensing a thing. Like that, I, I really feel like the kernel and, and open source, which again was really bolstered by the kernel, that pushed this understanding of open source, of, of common assets defined by clear licensing terms. That pushed it into common culture. People, people understand, some people understand, that there are some rules that people have that that we can all agree to follow when borrowing each other's work. Other people don't quite understand that either because they haven't thought about it or because they're willfully denying it uh, because they're you know I don't know some part of a big corporation that's trying to make money off of some the busy box without you know um, releasing the their their source code or something like that. Um, but but generally speaking, that was a major innovation I think. But there have been, you know, very technical innovations that the Linux kernel uh, has has achieved. One of them, for instance, and this is one of my sort of, I find this a very interesting one, is that a developer, Sage Sharp, announced in 2009 a driver for USB 3.0. Back then, of course, USB 3.0 was the newest the newest thing. It was like literally the newest thing because that that meant that. Uh, Linux kernel 2.6.31 was the first operating system, the first kernel for an operating system called Linux, um, to, to include drivers for the USB 3.0 uh, device. That that was the first kernel to have USB drivers. Now, this is kind of a, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of, uh, it looks good on a plaque on the wall, but realistically, like, how big of a deal is it? It's not, really. I mean, it was inevitable that other operating systems were going to support USB 3.0. Well, not inevitable, let's face it. Apple tends to do surprising and strange things that tend to lean towards uh, proprietary technology rather than open source or open specifications, but... Uh, in the end, it, it became rather inevitable that everything was going to be USB 3.0 anyway, so the fact that Linux had it first, it's not that big of a deal. It just means that, that the commit happened to reach the kernel of Linux before the commit was made public to everyone else on other operating systems. We don't know when when anything else got technically got support for USB 3.0. So it is a little bit of a weird bragging right there, but I think really most importantly what it highlights is the the significance of open source because it had the driver first because it's open source and anyone could put that driver into the kernel and someone did that's a big deal and it, it underscores the importance of open source now i say that and i am fully aware that you could probably come up with half a dozen examples of things that didn't get into the linux kernel because or haven't gotten into the linux kernel because Nobody cares about it. There's not a Sage Sharp for the um, I don't know, you know, the the widget 3000 um, peripheral that you have that you really want a driver for, but you don't have the skills to write a driver for it, and and no one else is. So the the fact that it's open source in that regard doesn't technically help anyone. I mean, it does really because the 
manufacturer of the widget 3000 could submit a driver to the Linux kernel. Um, and But if they don't, and if you don't, and if no one else does, then that driver never got into the Linux kernel, and that's that. But the potential is still there, and as always, if it's a closed source thing, a closed source kernel, the potential just isn't there. I mean, it is there, right? Because someone could write a driver and then release the driver, and that could just be like an add-on thing for an operating system. So functionally, it's it's essentially the same kind of thing. But that's not the kernel. Like, that's not official support in the in the operating system. Linux... Anyone can submit a driver to the actual kernel. Uh, it's just, it's important. It's, it's a significant thing. Okay, so that was, that was the first thing that I wanted to highlight. A couple of other things. Um, the kernel marks itself as tainted when some event occurs that could be useful later for troubleshooting. So, if you're running a, quote, tainted kernel, that in itself is not a bad thing. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a thing that happens so that you know that that kernel is tainted. Let's try to reproduce the issue on a non-tainted kernel. So if you've ever heard the phrase, oh, that's a tainted kernel, which you may have, may not have, um, that's what that's referring to. Another thing, you can specify a host name or domain name as part of the IP equals command line option, uh, which Linux uses in, in, in deference to a DHCP or boot P uh, name. So if you do uh, IP equals colon 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 my host name colon colon DHCP, then your host name is now my host name, no matter what anything else on the network is trying to tell you your host name is going to be. It's a minor thing, but it kind of highlights, once again, the flexibility of the Linux kernel. You, you can't do that on other operating systems. I mean, maybe you can somehow. I mean, every time I say you can't, you know, it turns out you can. But, but just the ease of of configuring this thing is just is such a and and that's at boot. Understand, like that that's a boot option. I mean, I don't know how to do that with Lilo, to be honest. Oh, yes, I do actually. But you know, I mean, it's it's easy. You just type it in as part of the the command that's launching your VM Linux thing. So nice. Okay, four. So that was the third thing. Four. There's a version of a black and white of a 16 color and a 224 color tux logo for your text boot up screen. Now on Slackware you get to see that. On other distributions these days you don't get to see that. They they conceal the the verbose output from you. But on Slackware certainly you you've got to be used to seeing the penguin across the top of the screen as you're booting. Yeah, there's flexibility there. Black and white, 16, 224 color version. Okay, number five is a little note about DRM in a kernel. Uh, you might see this sometimes in uh, various outputs. Zorg, zorg zorg.log, zorg.log, no, zorg.zero.log, um, or or other D messages. There, there's sometimes a reference to DRM. That's not um, digital rights restrictions management. Whatever DRM is stands for in in the other world. In the Linux world, that stands for Direct Rendering Manager, and it's it's referring specifically to a library called libdrm. It's a, it's the drivers being used to interface with your GPU, uh, your your video card. So if you see DRM listed, it's got nothing to do with limiting what kind of media you're allowed to watch. It's it's everything with just interfacing with your video card. Number six, it is possible to patch the Linux kernel without rebooting. Now in the 
the compiling of the kernel that I just did, we did, just did together for the copy break. Of course, we rebooted at the end. But there are systems um, for, for servers, primarily, uh, that allow you to to patch a kernel with no, without rebooting it. It's, it's pretty impressive, um, considering that the kernel... I mean, that's a thing that's loaded into memory. That is that is running your computer. It is handling interrupt cycles and, 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 and managing... Well, it doesn't manage PIDs, I guess, but the init process does that. But, you know, that's a, an integral part of, of why your computer is still on and, and sort of still, you know, processing data. So to be able to patch that, to apply some kind of security patch, whatever, and then still not reboot just feels almost incomplete, I think. It would feel very strange. I've never done it, um, but I do know that such things do exist. I've, I've, I've talked to people who have experienced it, so that's a really cool feature. And important for servers, as, as you can imagine. I mean, maybe it's less important these days, because... Maybe. Because you do have a lot of, like, Kubernetes clusters, which which could probably, for most of your compute nodes, you could just reboot those, and those will just disappear from your cluster and then rejoin once they're rebooted. But I guess for that that control plane, you would, you would probably want that, so I guess it is still useful. 7. When compiling your own kernel, you can configure your text console to have more than 80 columns. Yeah, if you've ever noticed that your virtual consoles, you know, when you do Alt-F, or uh, Control-Alt-F, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7... Um, they're kind of constrained to a certain width, and and by width I mean a character column. But when you're um, when you're compiling your kernel, you can actually change that. You can have more columns than eighty, which I guess eighty on you know old devices was a significant thing. Uh, nowadays, it, it's not all that significant. It it still might not be a bad idea, I guess, because at certain resolutions, maybe that's you you kind of reduce you get reduced down to eighty. So like in some not emergency, but some fallback modes might, might might eighty might make more sense, but I don't know, maybe not. You can also configure it as a bootloader setting. Uh, I don't know that command off the top of my head though. Number eight, the Linux kernel provides built-in FAT, XFAT, and NTFS read and write compatibility. I mean, this is huge. Um, this is the kind of thing that you might imagine would be the thing that would let people finally switch to Linux. You know, that mythical barrier has now been broken. Of course, no one cares. Um, it's this kind of feature, just the, the 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 quiet and casual integration of NTFS, that you would just think, well, that's that's huge. Like, how can people take that for granted? Well, super easy. People take that for granted. Um, I don't I don't even know if Mac OS can deal with NTFS still. I mean, it's I know that it does XFAT, but I'm, I'm not even sure about NTFS on macOS. It probably does by now, but for a very long time, it did not. And and it's just kind of funny that it's just casually, quietly there in Linux, and it's not a big deal. It's just it's just a thing. The, these are the kind of innovations, you know. They, those innovations are the the things that just kind of it just it just doesn't quite get the sort of recognition that you think maybe it deserves. Um, something also that's kind of quietly and casually just there. Number nine, drivers for the Wacom tablet, the Wacom branded tablets and similar devices are just built into the kernel. And and once again, um, I mean this, so the, the Wacom tablet, um, they actually, I've emailed them before to thank them for their Linux drivers. Uh, I used to work at a 
art school and and that was a major major component of of the workstations and the fact that the Linux workstations just you plugged in a Wacom tablet and it just worked was such a nice just a such a pleasant experience because trying to configure a Mac to talk to a Wacom tablet and you you might think because of the cliches involved here you know the sort of the 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 cliche of of Mac OS just being inherently a more creative platform and the Wacom tablet being for creative people you know you might think that they would just sort of integrate instantly uh turns out that's not the case at all in, in no way is that the case. Uh, the Wacom tablet uh, requires, depending on what kind of tablet you have, it, it requires quite a lot of configuration on, on Mac. And on Linux, not so much. It is literally built into the kernel. 10. Most kernel hackers use the git send-email to submit patches. They uh, Git being such a diverse and a well-integrated system just you don't see people you know committing to branches and things like that they just get i mean they do they they commit to their own branch but i mean it's decentralized right and so they somehow it has to filter back up to the the central point of approval which is linus torvalds uh and the 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 built-in method for that is a command that i never use which is get send email I just i've never never had the occasion to to email a patch to anyone 11. The kernel uses a documentation toolchain called Sphinx, which is written in Python. You um, may have heard me talk about Sphinx before. I, I used to use it uh, here and there. was really, really impressed by it. Still am. It's still a really, really cool system. It's a little bit heavy on the back end for me, so I, I don't actually use it anymore at all, uh, and I just keep falling back to DocBook, despite, despite all of the other options out there. Uh, just DocBook is still just the easiest, and and in a pinch, you know, Pandoc makes everything really easy too. So I don't know, Sphinx just doesn't quite fit in with my workflow, but it is a really nice system. Twelve, Hamlib provides shared libraries with a standardized API to control amateur radio equipment. So if you're an amateur radio operator, you can do that in a virtual way on your Linux computer thanks to Hamlib, which, um, I mean, there's there's lots of information about that on Hacker Public Radio, uh, Linux in the Hamshack, all kinds of information about operating radio equipment through software. And it's really, really cool, and it's something that I, I keep meaning to get into and just have not yet. I do have the Ham, uh, the radio amateur radio operator test uh, study book right there within my vision, and I have not read through it yet, but... I mean, I started, but then it got busy. So I don't know. Who knows? Maybe this year. Maybe next year. What am I on now? 13? Something like that? Uh, 13. The band Netcat released an album that's playable only as a Linux kernel module. I have compiled this before. I have run it uh, on my kernel. It's really cool. You should check it out. I will put a, sh- a link in the show notes. Uh, it is github.com slash usrbinnc slash netcat dash cp i dash kernel dash module it's it's an album and yes you can you can play it by loading the the linux the 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 module into your kernel it's it needs to be custom compiled for your for your kernel so if you recompile your kernel you will lose access to that module but you can just download it again and 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 have it have it back up and running um and and there's also bizarrely so this is number uh, 14 i guess um there's also a a module to turn your kernel into a music player, which is over at github.com slash Flavia R, 
slash netcat dash music dash kernel dash expansion. And that's apparently was inspired by the netcat album. So um, this is the kind of thing, right? Once more, not to not to bang on this drum too much, but this is the kind of open source collaboration and iteration. Like one would have never existed without the other. And one is a wholly non-technical... I mean, someone had to write the Linux kernel module for the Netcat album. But most of that band isn't d- didn't write that kernel module. In fact, I think possibly none of that band did. Uh, someone else, they, they may have gotten someone else to do it. They, they All they did was come up with some really great music. But then, you know, they turned that into a Linux kernel module. Someone else saw that and had this crazy idea. Let's, let's, let's make, let's take that idea and run with it and make a kernel, a music player for the kernel. I mean, is it necessary? No, not at all. But is it creative? Is it cool? Is it in the hacker spirit? Yes, absolutely. Uh, number, what am I, 15 now? The Linux kernel features, um, CPU architectures probably more than you even know exist. Um, I mean, I don't know you, but I, 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 there, there are a lot. There are more than, I guess, probably I knew existed by, like, one or two. So uh, there are more than what I can think of, but there's ARM, there's ARM64, if you count that as a separate one. There's IA64, there's M68K, MIPS, PARISC, OpenRISC, PowerPC, S390, Spark, x86, x86 underscore 64, Extensa, never heard of that one, NIOS2, never heard of that one. So there's two that I'd never heard of, and there's more than that, so I just... I mean, the list is extensive and is kind of amazing. In 2001, in fact, the Linux kernel became the first to run x86-64 architecture in long mode. That's a, another big deal, right? On on the same level as USB 3.0. I mean, again, it, it's basically inevitable that 64-bit long mode was going to be supported elsewhere, but just the fact that it was in the Linux kernel first is kind of cool. Number 17, I think. Linux version 3.4 introduced the X32ABI, which allows developers to compile code to run in 64-bit mode while only using 32-bit pointers and data fields. Bridges the gap of 32-bit and 64-bit, and different operating systems deal with that gap differently. Some of them are just wholesale dropping support for 32-bit and just pretending like the only thing that exists anymore is 64-bit and so on. Slackware is doing a really good job of, of, of not doing that. Debian, I think, is doing a really great job of that. NetBSD does a great job of that. So, you know, there's a lot of open source support. But this is kind of just making sure that the other way, I mean, because 64 to 32 is one thing, but 32 to 64 is quite another. Um... Number 18, I guess. The uh, kernel supports lots of different file systems, as I mentioned before. And again, possibly more than you even realize existed. There's ext uh, ext2, ext3, ext4, jfs, xfs, gfs2, gcfs2, butterfs, nilfs2, nfs, overlayfs, udf, and more than that. I mean, again, fat, xfat, ntfs, yeah, lots of, um, and, and I've, I've already HFS, HFS plus, AFS, lots of them. So let's see, number, that was 18. So uh, let's do 19. Uh, The Linux kernel includes a driver for physical Braille output devices. I've never seen one, but apparently it's a, it's a device that physically raises pins on a Braille, on a, in, in Braille, so that you can read the output of your terminal, but, but in Braille. It's, 
it's nearly the stuff of steampunk science fiction. You know, it's so physical and tangible and yet computerized. It's very cool. So I think this is 20 now, uh, or 19, 20, I don't know. Losing count. N- not doing great on my on my countdown, I guess. Um, in kernel version 2.6.29, the Tux logo, you may not know this, was replaced during the boot process um, by Tuz, that's T-U-Z, uh, which was a campaign to raise awareness of an aggressive cancer that was affecting the Tasmanian devil population in Australia. And Linus Torvalds did that because... Um, well, he's a big fan, I guess, of Australia in general. I mean, he comes down here every year for linuxconf.au. Um, in fact, I saw him at linuxconf.au, but um, didn't really have anything to say, so I didn't, I didn't actually speak to him. Uh, here's a couple more. These, these are these are bonus ones. Control groups. That's C groups. Are the reason containers, which you know drives Podman and Kubernetes and Docker and things like that, exist wholesale? Like. C groups is the reason containers exist. And not everyone necessarily understands this, but containers, when people talk about containers, they are literally talking about Linux. Like, containers are Linux. It's That's what a container is. It's, it's bizarre that we don't call them, I guess, Linux containers. We just call them containers. And no one, not everyone realizes that when you're saying containers, you're saying Linux. Because a container is Linux. Like, you install a container, and it is Linux. That's it. Like, there's no... You you can't install a Windows container. You can install a container on Windows. You can install a container on Mac OS, I guess. But you can't... It's not... You're not installing a Windows container or a Mac container. You're you're installing a Linux container. And the reason for that is because C groups exist. There are control groups to manage to help manage all the different um, sort of layers of isolation that are required in order to sort of create a container. Without without that, there there would be no container. Everything would just leak all over the place. And then the final bonus one, I guess, is a little reminder that it took um, it took extensive legal action to liberate the SIFS system, the 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 SMB system by Microsoft in order to allow the the SIFS module to be built into the kernel. And this was an ongoing case that that went on for, for years and affected very real people, some of whom I know personally. Um, and, and and it's easy to kind of forget that sort of thing now and and trivialize it, but it's kind of important to keep that in mind because for a very long time, I mean, Microsoft had this this platform to sh- to to integrate you know to to share files which i mean lots of people had that sun microsystems had that mac had that linux had that that wasn't a big deal the the big deal was that they had it locked down in order in in terms of integration so if you weren't running a microsoft system you could not then access the thing that a microsoft system had marked explicitly to be accessible and that was a problem because it meant that you really didn't have a choice. If you were in a place that was using SMB for file sharing, then you had to go to a Microsoft workstation in order to get to a file that was being shared. And it took legal action to get the specifications for that protocol so that the Samba project, samba.org, could 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 re-implement it, could could implement the you know the specification and and make it so that other operating systems could integrate with that file sharing. It's it's a move of monopolism 
of 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 really just of you know of of, of ensuring that that others other systems have no way to compete or to participate really it's not even a matter of necessarily competing it's just it's just whether or not you're forced to buy a microsoft system it took lots of court cases lots of people were threatened by microsoft uh with litigation and th- these were developers these were just normal everyday people like you and me uh who were who were threatened by a big corporation you know for for breaking various laws for for reverse engineering the protocols and so on um and that's something that's important to remember because i mean i know microsoft would never do that nowadays because microsoft loves open source but at one point they did and it's important to keep that in mind because that's what sometimes big companies do when when protocols are are not or certain certainly standards are not uh, kept open so Yet again, that that's like twenty, twenty-two different areas from that that have been really largely affected by the Linux kernel, and that's just a, a a list sort of from 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 the things that I sort of you know that that are top of mind for me. There's a whole lot more out there. The LW Insight you can read through its archives and gather all kinds of information about the Linux kernel that you may not have ever known before. It's really really fascinating stuff kind of profound and the funny thing is that when you're using linux the last thing you're generally thinking of is the kernel it it's despite the name despite the fact that it is the thing making your computer go it's just not something you you tend to think about i'm not saying that you need to think about it in fact i'm saying hopefully you don't have to think about it it's great when you don't think about the kernel but every now and again like episode 442 you should think about it and now we have so you've got at least 20 new things about the kernel that you may may not have known before you've compiled the kernel and we are done with the k package set next up is the kde package set which ought to take us a good long while to get through because it's it's got lots of applications i have no idea how it's going to go because they're all graphical um, but we'll tackle that next episode and see how it goes there's a lot of great applications we'll get to it next time so until then thanks for listening Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
I have never experimented with the future before. 